HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, where each week women in the food world share stories of their lives and careers. Their lessons are inspiring for anyone looking to succeed in any profession. Today, my guest is Alison Robicelli, who is best known for the insanely indulgent desserts she created with her husband, Matt, like the Nutella lasagna. <laughs> Anyone remember that? Or chicken and waffles? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Both Allison and her business were born in Brooklyn, um, and they've moved. They moved. To, to Baltimore, along with Matt and their, their two kids. Now, I, you know, met Allison taste first, but... Allison's not only a really great baker, she's a prolific writer. Mm-hmm. Her cookbook, Robicelli's A Love Story with Cupcakes, was on a zillion best of lists in yep. 2013. And now she's a columnist and a recipe developer. So from the outside, Allison, your career looks like all shiny and fabulous, you know? <laughs> There's like the hit bakery and yeah. the successful book and the writing career. But I know that there have been a lot of struggles along the way. Of course. Partly because your writing is really personal and it's really provocative. And so I feel like I really know you, even though we've just met. So you first learned to cook as a result of needing to stay home during your treatment for... For cancer. Boom. Stage four lymphoma and bone cancer. Yeah, that sucked. Yeah, Don't get that. So... so how did it turn out that you channeled your energy into cooking? Like, here you are, mm-hmm. bad diagnosis, stuck at home. Hey, I know. I'm going to pick up a pan. Yeah. Um, 
it was a really, really weird time. Uh, I found out it was five days before my 21st birthday. Uh, didn't see that coming. Uh, I was actually in school to become, uh, a, I wanted to go into architectural preservation. I'm a, I'm a really big history nerd, especially metropolitan history. Um, you know, I wanted to go, like, you know, save every little weird historical artifact in New York. And I find out I have cancer. And it was really surreal. And... I've always, I've had a challenging life. A lot of stuff had happened to me before that point. So I actually, when they told me, I, I burst out laughing. And <laughs> I burst out laughing. That's an uncommon yeah. response. And my doctor said that. He's like, are you okay? I'm like, of course this would happen to me. Like, if it was going to happen to anybody, it was going to happen to me. Um, and then it got really depressing for a while because when you have cancer or, I mean, everybody can relate to this. When you have some sort of condition and... It is you. It is everything in your life. You wake up, it's that. You go to sleep, it's that. You're inside of it. And sometimes people stop looking at you for who you are. And they stop seeing like, oh, this is Alice, my friend. It's like my friend with cancer. And, you know, I would talk to people and I would realize that, you know, when they're asking me about how I'm doing, everything was, how are you doing? Don't you hate that? And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I, I still do stuff. <laughs> I still do stuff, and I still read books, and I still have all this stuff. And then you start to realize that the questionings they're asking you, they don't care about you. They're wondering if they have cancer, you know? <laughs> and it's kind of like, how did you find out? Well, what did you feel? Are there lumps anywhere? And they're touching themselves. I'm like, oh, my God. God, you know, because nobody wants to know the 21 year old girl with cancer. We're all in our senior year of college, and now one of us is like, hey, I might die. I might die. I don't know yet, but we'll see. Um, and then 9 11 happened six weeks after my diagnosis. And again, I'm from Brooklyn, uh, and I started chemo at Lutheran, which is in Brooklyn in Sunset Park. And when I would I take the uh, elevator up to the fifth floor, where the oncology suite was, and you come out of the elevator, and the first thing you see is a gigantic window, and it just overlooks the site. And the sky was black. I mean, if you, if you didn't live here, you didn't realize that it didn't stop that day. It was black for, like, two months, and I think it burned until December. So every day I'm going into chemo, and the first thing I'm seeing is that. Uh, and I'm getting my chemo and, and all that. And it was just a terrible time. So... Uh, I, I really felt really alone. When everybody looks at you as just cancer, you realize you're alone. And then I was like, well, now I'm at this point where cancer is defining me. Uh, and I don't want that. I, I should be defining myself. And, you know, if I just sit here and feel sorry, cancer gets this year of my life. And I'm only going to get so many. And this might be the last one. So my choice is I can learn stuff and I can make myself better and I can take back this year or I could sit around and be a little bitch about it. And that's where the cooking thing came from. I'd always um, liked food and I, I always thought it was just magic or something you did. And I, you know, I was watching like Food Network at the time and saw Alton Brown. And I saw, I was like, oh, my God, wait, there's science here. And I'm like, and that I could grab onto. I, I love science and I love, I've always liked taking things apart and tinkering with them and seeing the bones and meat of how it works. And I was like, this is interesting. And I would sit there and I'd, I'd watch his shows with a big yellow legal pad and I'd take notes and uh, I got Harold McGee's books. And when I was good, I would bake and I would try stuff. And, uh, you know, when I wasn't, I'd watch that and I'd watch Ranger games and I'd try to learn everything I could and I took to chemo really well um, I my insurance just approved the type of chemo I could have like mm. six months before if that hadn't happened I was gone 
And I finished the next year, and like six months later, uh, I got my first job. There was a cafe around the corner, and the woman had just come from Le Cirque, which was, you know, like, you know, it, back then the great restaurants were like Le Cirque and Lutece and, and all of those things, and it was just so amazing to me. And I'd, I worked and I learned how to make French buttercream and bomboloni, and um, I remember the first time putting on my little rental chef's jacket in, in the, uh, the basement. And if you've ever been into a basement of a kitchen in New York City, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's like that one light bulb that's swinging and you think that you could be murdered. Um, <laughs> you'd never know if there's not a murderer who lives down there. It's like an X-Files episode. And I remember just standing there and looking at myself in this dirty, cracked mirror and with the chef's jacket. And I was like, oh, my God, like, look at me. Like, this is real. Like, and it was the most amazing thing in the world. And you also did it. I mean, you I like the notion that when you're going through something like um, cancer, that you can set a goal for yourself and then accomplish it. I mean, cooking is so doable. As you say, when you're feeling well, you can yeah. do it. If you're feeling not so well, yeah. it's not going to die on you. And um, and you start, you taught yourself a skill that you were able to carry on. And were you feeding people? Did people get to taste your experiments and say, oh my God, you're you know, great. Some of it. Some and, of it. But I, did, I didn't really get to cook as much as I would have liked to. Like There were a lot of days where I, I, mean, I couldn't stand up. And what you what you don't realize about chemo is that it doesn't just you know it it doesn't just go into your body and like go to the cancer and get rid of the cancer it goes to everything so it's attacking the cancer but it's also attacking the rest of you and as you go on you know you, the cancer's going away but that means there's more of the rest of you to attack and i mean i got to a point where like if i had died i would have been really cool with it like i have a very bizarre relationship with death because of it because you will get to a point one day where you're like I'm good with this like I am I don't fear death because I mean aside from the fact I have children now but like when I'm like 80 if it comes I'm like yeah yeah we're good with this okay so, well let's move on to cupcakes oh I'm sorry so yes like <laughs> cupcakes but oh, just to anyway, finish the question like right. so by the end I was really just completely bedridden um, so um, it was a lot of writing and it was a lot of reading and oh. that's where I, I kind of I think shapes a lot of my career because I don't necessarily want to be in the kitchen as much as I want to keep learning. And the learning part fascinates me. So let's go um, out of the cupcakes now. (laughs) Um, I think that is such an incredibly interesting point as well, that you did two things that actually, Mm -hmm. during a terrible time, were the foundation of things that are truly fantastic in your life today. Um, You know, another place where I feel like you struggled and overcame and you did an extraordinary pivot that people could learn from is when you and Matt first launched your business. Mm -hmm. And it was 2008. Mm -hmm. And you read the book. (laughs) And, you know, there it is. You got this huge first weekend. You're like, oh my God, we made it. This is going to be awesome. And then, boom, it it crashed. And the customers disappeared. Yep. But that was not the end of you and your business. So tell me, like, how you managed through that and how you got to the other side and Well, I mean, just to preface it, my um, we were talking about 9-11. My husband was a first responder. And my husband was one of the first guys down there, and he got hurt the first day. And he lost his career. He was a paramedic. That's all he ever wanted to do. Uh, and then he decided to learn how to cook to recover from his injury and he went to cooking school and then he ended up at Lutess back to back to the masters so he was the the final boulanger at Lutess and then we met and we had always talked about 
opening up a place. We had our first kid. Uh, we knew we couldn't hack into restaurants anymore and raise a family. You know, you're, you're in your 20s. You live in New York. You're like, what am I going to do? So we put all our money together and opened this gourmet shop slash sandwich shop. And that's what we ever really wanted. We wanted, like, a sandwich shop and to do catering. And we had a really great first weekend. And then on Monday was the stock market crash. It was the moment the bubble burst. And it was like, oh, fuck, what do we do? And we had a... Um, Atticus was eight months old and Toby was six weeks old. And we didn't really have a choice, you know? That can't be right. Eight months and six weeks? Yeah, eight months. Oh, no, no, sorry. Uh, 18 months. 18 months. Yeah, that would have been impressive. (laughs) Uh, So I've got these two babies on my hips. And then, like, three weeks later, uh, Atticus, who was 18 months, got a really bad lung infection. And he was in the pediatric ICU for three weeks. So now I have the baby, and then I have the business, and then I have the baby in the ICU. And then, oh, and also the two days before the store opened, like one of my best friends committed suicide. Uh, So that was October. (laughs) And then December came. And then the week before Christmas, Matt's mom was uh, hit by a hit and run driver in Bay Ridge, where we lived. Uh, And she somehow survived, but she lost a huge chunk of her brain. And like for a year and a half, they were like, we had to keep going to the hospital to say goodbye. Um, So it was just terrible (laughs) the entire time. And we got to March, and we're like, our marriage is limping, the business is limping. Matt's like, I don't know what to do. There's nobody coming. And uh, we're like, well, we have to start baking again, because we were really good at that. And Matt's like, we're not going to sell enough cakes to pay the rent and all the expenses, because the expenses in New York are insanity. So I was like, well, let's make cupcakes. I'm like, we'll just take it, and we'll make cupcakes, and then people will come in for those, and then they'll keep buying the sandwiches, and then we'll get catering gigs for the spring. And then the cupcakes took off. Um, and it was it was very silly to us. It was sort of funny. And then we kind of understood sort of the really great opportunity we had. Like, we grew up in South Brooklyn. You know, my best friend's from China. Um, you know, around the down the block, there's a Polish family and a Greek family. And you grew up around every culture in the world. So for us, it wasn't like, oh, a cake with pink frosting and sprinkles. It was like, how do we take every dessert that we grew up with <laughs> and make it into these things? And people would come in and be like, oh, what's this thing with the sour cherries? And I'm like, it's got the sour cream, buttercream. And then when you, if, you go to, if you go to Brighton Beach and there's this place, Tatiana's, and they make these awesome blinis and you really got to go try it. Uh, and it was just kind of a way of, of storytelling, of, of getting these things into something that people would eat. And then trying to get them to kind of expand their horizons. And that was exciting for us. And then, um, you know, we still lost the business, uh, but we kept going wholesale. And Brooklyn was fun back then. Brooklyn was like 2009. And the scene hadn't quite started yet, but there were enough of us in Brooklyn that um, we kind of formed a little family. And we did cool stuff. We were like, let's start a market in a church. Let's do this thing in a vacant lot. And... Uh, I mean, it was just a really great time. It was, I guess, like the folk scene in the 60s or like <laughs> punk in the 70s. And it was like us with the cupcakes in the 2000s, you know? Um, it was it was just fun and it was creative. And you could be in a factory overnight with a baby on your hip uh, making stuff while your friends are making caramels down the thing. And we all took care of each other. And, um, and yeah, that was the beginning of the Brooklyn food scene. And... You know, things things changed a lot, but it was it was fun. I, I loved every, I loved struggling. I and I think you kind of you see the beauty in the broken. That's what I learned growing up in Brooklyn and growing up in New York City in the eighties. It was not fun to be here, uh, especially if you were from Brooklyn. You know, because 
Manhattan had gone bankrupt and New York was this cesspool and it was terrifying. And then Brooklyn was the wor- worse than that, you know? <laughs> it was worse. So I, I've always kind of loved taking things that are broken and, and finding beauty in them because I knew it's possible. I know it's possible. Um, I think also one of the things that um, I've heard you say that I find very moving along these lines is that both you and Matt run towards problems yeah. rather than away from yeah. them, which most people are the opposite. Yeah. And certainly Matt being a first responder, yeah. that is running towards them. But I'm wondering, what do you think that is in your character that makes you run towards those problems and think things you can fix them or you can do something about it? Um, well, like I said, I, I mean, there, I had some really shitty times growing up and uh, there were a lot of problems in my family, um, you know, abusive relationships and, and things like that. And you, you, you get tough from it. I mean, you have to be tough growing up in Brooklyn. You have to be tough growing up a girl. Um, and I, I just started to, I really internalized things a lot. Like, you know, you talked about how my writing is very personal, but that's, it's only in my writing. Like I have very few super close friends. I'm not somebody who's going to call my friends and talk about my feelings. Um, cause I work everything out in my head. And I realized that if I, if I gave time to the people that hurt me, if I'm going to sit there and, and think about these people, they are taking more of my life than I should allow. You know, it's like you got this part out of me. You got this part where I got hurt, but that's all you get. Okay, I mean, I'm going to be the powerful one and I'm going to take this. And that gives you sort of so much of a strength that when you do see things that are broken and you have that kind of creativity and you have that strength and you have that excitement um, and you have that sense of leadership. Yeah, you want you want to run towards these things because you're like, I can help. (laughs) I can help. I can make things better. Um, I don't want to just sit here and and benefit. I don't just want to take things in and I just don't want to exist. I want to, you know, create stuff that changes people's lives and gets people excited. And then you start kind of that chain reaction. And I think you had talked about um, in your consulting business because you're mm -hmm. consulting now. Yeah, you could go in and you could see what's wrong and assess in 20 minutes. Yeah. I, I have ADHD. It's a hell of a drug. <laughs> um, but, but, but like, what do you, you know, let's say that you go into, I assume you're consulting on restaurants or mm-hmm. bakeries. When you go in, like, what do you see? You know, like, what do you see that I don't see? Like I walk in, I'm like, Oh my God, it looks so good. Mm, it smells delicious. Yeah. But I think a lot of times, um, people aren't really being true to yourself. And what I know from being a business owner, you're there every single day and you are, you're living it and it's your life. And if you're not kind of telling your story and that's all food is food is storytelling uh, through a very essential, you know, you can eat, you have to eat, sleep, poop, breathe. That's it. We need to do that. Um, So if you're not really being true to yourself or trying to be somebody else, that's why it's not working. So first you have to kind of take that away and just see like, okay, so what, what is it that's around you? Um, and with, with anything, like, I'll see lots of dots in, in the world. And very quickly, and a lot of people think in a straight line, and I don't. I, I see in a web. So I've always got, like, a thousand things in front of me, and it's finding the lines out of that. Like, like and I always, like, I come up with ideas in the car, and I don't, they're not necessarily ideas for me. But I'll, like, okay, I, I should call this person and give them this idea. Like, I had... Uh, I live in Baltimore now where you can get on the train and be in D.C. in like 45 minutes to an hour. Same way in New York. We've all, you know, I'm used to commuting 45 minutes to an hour in Manhattan. So when the protest, uh, the Women's March was happening, 
I kept telling all my friends, like, come stay in Baltimore. It's great. It's a lot cheaper that we have a lot of stuff to do. And I want people to see these things. And then there was like that light bulb. I'm like, well, we were the second city to issue a proclamation against Donald Trump. Um, we, no, see, it was San Francisco, and then our city council came up with something. We're a very progressive city. Uh, we're uh, a very integrated city with a ton of history. Nobody likes this guy. Uh, and I was like, well, why aren't people staying in Baltimore? You know, because they don't know about the train. They don't know how to get there. So I called my friend at the tourism board. And I was like, you know, we do this, this, and we get a, you know, we talk to Lyft, and we get a shuttle, and, you know, we go to Penn Station, and then we could talk to this restaurant because they're owned by a gay couple who likes giving back, and then we can put 10%, and we could give it to Planned Parenthood at Howard Avenue. And she's like, how did you do this? I'm like, I was in the car. <laughs> you know? But you see all those, there's all those dots existing. It's just finding the line that connects to all of them. And there's other lines there. You know, there's other routes. But if something works, you have 10 possibilities out of it. And if that doesn't work, well, you go to this line over here. So I'm going to ask, because you are such a Baltimore booster now. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And you're writing a book on... um, I'm writing a a history book on Baltimore. It's a history slash travel guide for um, a company. It's out of Germany called 111 Places You Must Not Miss. And the American editor liked my first book. She's known me for ages. She loves my writing. And she's like, you want to write one about Baltimore? I'm like, yes, I do. So give me five. Like, what are, I mean, is that too much pressure Oh, no, on no, spot? no. Oh, so, God. There's so many things. Um, so if someone was going to go from, you know, get on that train, go to Baltimore, where should they eat? Oh, if you should eat. Um, pit beef is a classic. Everybody knows about the crab cake, but pit beef is um, kind of more of a Baltimore thing. If you're driving, you go out to Pioneer Pit Beef uh, in Catonsville, which isn't it's like the suburbs, which is kind of like Brooklyn to Manhattan. Or you can go to Chaps, which is really famous. And people in Baltimore like arguing over who's the best. Um, there's, no, there's no wrong answer there. There is a diner called the Broadway Diner, which is the most perfect diner in America. And I <laughs> eat at a lot of diners, but everybody's like happy to be there. And they actually make really good food because they care about the place. Your kids love it, yeah. I know. And, well, and then there's an ice cream place called the Charmery, which is on um, 36th, the Avenue in Hampton and Chestnut, which makes the best. And I love ice cream. I travel to eat ice cream. This is the best ice cream in America. The wow. best. So if you're in, you should just drive there to eat at the Charmery, and then you can go back to where you are. <laughs> uh, other places, I mean, it depends on what you like. I, I love art. Uh, and the Baltimore Museum of Art, it's free. It has the uh, largest Matisse collection in the world. It was uh, Baltimore used to be the second biggest city. In the country. It was railroad money. It's like the Upper East Side. And there was these uh, two women, the Cohn sisters, and they loved traveling to Paris, and they loved art, and they met a guy named Picasso who was poor as crap. And they met a guy named Henri Matisse, and he was poor as crap. And they're like, you know what, we'll buy your paintings for like 10 cents. And they were the ones who were funding him. And then they amassed this massive collection called the Cone Collection. And you go, and, and you're just like floored by this stuff. And they were just like, yeah, we're going to take it. And it's free. Uh, other- so, so these... So these um- the Cone Sisters are super famous, and I have never seen that collection myself. You're inspiring me. Like, I, I, want, yeah. I want to go on the train. We had, had talked a, about um, if there's, like, a poem or a song or oh, words. Oh, yeah. where is my that, phone? Um, it's in here somewhere. Yeah. That inspire you, as, as Matisse would inspire anybody who could spend a few minutes in front of a canvas. Oh, let me see if I can um, pull it up right now. I should have pulled this up earlier. <laughs> no worries. For... I got here. Let's see. Here we go. My speech for... No, I do have internet service. So, uh, 
Well, let, let's wait until I have an internet connection over here. Yes, if you don't, we're going to we'll move on. and we'll, we'll get there eventually. So, okay. But uh, it was a beautiful speech from uh, Doctor Who. I will post it later on my tiny letter, <laughs> which Dana subscribed to last night. So that's not intimidating for me at all, knowing that Dana Cowan is reading my words several times a week. So I will post it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I just got it. But I did get to plug my tiny letter tinyletter.com slash Alison Verbicelli. If you... How well did that work out? That was awesome. I know. I know. It was good. And you really should subscribe to the Tiny Letter because it's extremely funny. Thank you, Dave. Okay, so my favorite television show uh, of all time is Doctor Who. And uh, Doctor Who just... I watch it with my kids and it's about, you know, constant exploration and anything is possible and it... It's always inspiring to me, and this is a, a speech that Clara gave in uh, an episode called Listen, which is about uh, fear of the unknown. This is just a dream, but very clever people can hear dreams, so please, just listen. I know you're afraid, but being afraid is all right, because didn't anybody ever tell you fear is a superpower? Fear can make you faster and cleverer and stronger. And one day you'll come back here, and on that day you will be very afraid indeed. But that's okay, because if you're very wise and you're very strong, fear does not have to make you cruel or cowardly. Fear can make you kind. It doesn't matter if there's nothing under the bed or in the dark, so long as you know that it is okay to be afraid of it. So listen. If you listen to anything else, you listen to this. You're always going to be afraid, even if you learn how to hide it. Fear is a companion. It's a constant companion, always there. But that's okay, because fear can bring us together. Fear can bring you home. And always remember, fear makes constant companions of us all. So see this? That is really beautiful. It's very deep for a sci-fi show, but it's it's wonderful and if, you know, it's on Amazon Prime. If anybody just wants to watch Doctor Who, it's it's wonderful. It's taught my kids so many great lessons about about being creative and imagination. And I that's that is going to parenting. Uh the one thing I really push on my kids. I'm like imagination is the most important thing you will ever have in your life. And it is something that you need to work out every day. You need to exercise your imagination, and you can never, ever lose it. Uh, so that's a, that's a show that allows them to, uh, you know, imagine and play. Adults need to play more. Adults need to be silly. There's not enough silliness in food. <laughs> we need to have more fun. And with that, we're going to take a little commercial break. And after the break, I'll be back with Allison. Robicelli, which yeah. I mispronounced the first time. Uh, it, it either worked. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. 
Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hello, we're back. It's Dana Cowan and speaking broadly. And today my guest is Alison Robocelli, who has just given us a beautiful lesson on the power of fear through Doctor Who. Through Doctor Who. And all things are who, possible. All things are possible, <laughs> yep. and who would have guessed that? I'd love to talk a little bit about your writing, which I love so much. It feels very effortless because it feels like you are expressing your thoughts mm-hmm. are unmediated. They go from your yeah. brain through your hand and to the reader. And I, I'm wondering if writing about hard issues mm-hmm. helps make those hard issues easier for you. I, I think part of it does. Um, last year, I wrote an essay for Food 52. Uh, did you read it about White Castle? I totally okay. read it. <laughs> right. love that. And um, my husband had been, been very, uh, very sick last year. Uh, he got. We still don't really know what happened, but he got attacked with a, a heart infection early in the year, and we spent a lot of time in the hospital. And I was really like okay with it, because I mean, he, again, he was a nine eleven survivor. I, I've spent a lot of time with him in hospitals over the years, uh, and this one was really bad. But I was, you know, I have kids, uh, and I have people who, you know, they look at you like, "Are you okay?" Back to bringing it back to the beginning, and I'm like, "I'm fine. Everything's fine." Uh, and then. Kenzie Wilbur uh, at Food 52, my editor, who's amazing. Um, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm, everything in my life is on pause. I'm, I want to write again. Uh, and she goes, okay, well, we're, we're doing something about culture. Can you write about White Castle? And I think she was thinking a fluff piece. I was thinking a fluff piece. <laughs> and I, I sit down, and this, this essay about my husband being really sick comes out. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that happened. <laughs> and I handed it to her, and she's like, the whole office is crying. What did you do? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, we had no idea this was happening. I'm like, yeah, I didn't really talk about it. Um, and I, I, I understand that if you go through bad things in your life and you hold on to them, um, that's a lesson you learned, but there's somebody else going through it right now. And maybe they need to know that they're not alone. And maybe they need to know that everything's going to be okay. Or maybe they need to know everything's not going to be okay. But they can make it through that. So I think kind of holding on to your pain and your fear and stuff, it's, um, I mean, it's selfish. But it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to be selfish. Um, But you you shared, I mean, in that White Castle piece, you share a lot uh of the pain. And then in the piece that you wrote for Eater on um, Obamacare and the potential repeal of the ACA. Uh-huh. Also, um, a lot of your heart was in that piece, and uh-huh. a lot of your own story of illness and mm-hmm. the intersection between your life and the outside world yeah. and how to make things better. It seems very important to you. Um, like, I, like I said, I, I'm not much for really talking about my feelings, so I think it, it I, maybe subconsciously I'm saving it all for writing. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but I think it's it's really important to be human, and a lot of people 
uh, in food and in everything, we, we forget that there's a lot of humanity attached to it and attached to everything. Like we see, like I said before, when, when you were saying what I see in a concept that you do, uh, you don't, uh, people are trying to be something or create something and they, they lose the humanity behind it. You lose the humanity uh, of your staff. You lose the humanity of your connection um, with your guests or the, the community that you're creating in your in your restaurant. It shouldn't just be about the food. It should be about, like, you know, you and the people there and what they feel like when they leave and what they put into your neighborhood and what they put into your city. It's, it's just a huge connection. Um, I noticed a, a tremendous connection between um, your voice in writing, yeah. and your and the food you make, yeah. The you know the the connection, yeah. Um, the the humor, the gutsiness, yeah. the um, yeah. You know, everything with a grain of salt. There's not enough levity. There's you know, you you. I have a tremendous sense of gallows humor to survive a lot of the things I've I've gotten through, um, and I think that's you know. Did you that find that thing? those took work? I mean, did it take work to make it look as effortless both in oh. food and in the writing? That's a good question. That's a really good question. I think um, I think I think that there may have just been a moment where things sort of shifted with me and you like I used to write a, a blog when we had the when we first starting out we were just wholesaling and I would just post everything up on Tumblr and you know, you're trying to be really professional. They teach you stuff in, in business classes and stuff about how you're supposed to sell yourself, and there wasn't really anything personal there. And what started happening was as we got busier and busier, I started coming home later and later. And uh, at a certain hour, I just don't have any time for anybody's bullshit. Like, my Brooklyn accent comes back. I am, <laughs> like, my filter is off. And I just started typing, and then there was a good response to it. And I was like, this is so unprofessional. What the fuck am I doing? Um, but then I just, I kind of kept going with that, and I kind of, you know, I started, I liberated myself a lot. And, you know, again, there was good parts about it, and there's bad parts about it. You know, I will never, um, I will never be a woman in a suit, and I, I can't be really <laughs> polished, and I don't have much of a filter a lot of the times, and it does get me into trouble, but... Trouble is just adventure. I just got to remind myself <laughs> that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I just had to start giving myself permission to kind of let loose and kind of um, not hold back. And, like, the really meaty parts of my book, uh, they all happened between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. They happened in that moment of complete exhaustion where you realize, like, maybe you've been carrying all these things around with you. Um, and you just need to let them out. And I'm better at controlling that. Like, when I was writing the piece about the ACA, uh, I was doing it at, like, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm in a cafe, and I just start crying. And I never cry in front of people. And I'm in a cafe of people I don't know, and I'm hysterical. And they're like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm writing about health insurance. <laughs> and it was, like, a week after Trump election. They're like, "Where? Oh, we get you. We got you. You know? Um, so, yeah, it, it, there is there are times where... Uh, I don't have problems putting it on paper, but uh, it, it makes you kind of look in and it makes you dig deep into yourself. So it's not about the sharing is the fear. The, the sh it's about just acknowledging the pain for yourself. I get, does that make sense? It, make, it does make sense. Okay. I, I love um, the writing that you've done um, about vintage cookbooks oh, yeah, I love and that. your deep and total fascination. Um, your explanation of the Nestle Rod Pie... Yeah. has to be mm -hmm. um, one of my 
the favorite things I've ever read about. Even that's a head note, right? Because uh-huh. like food and wine, I read head notes. Yeah. Zillions of them. And you're always trying to make someone want to make the recipe and what uh-huh. is going to really engage them. And that isn't just like, it is a great compliment to your, yeah. you know, potatoes or whatever. And um, what you taught me in the Nesselrod pie was about French history. And I'm not so good with Talleyrand and Napoleon and yeah. the czars and all of yeah. that. But um, can you tell me a little bit about your vintage cookbook fascination and what effect it's had on your cooking? I, I love old things and I love broken things um, I kind of just like uh, holding on to stuff and, and understanding how things were different back then and, and how things have changed and um, I've always been a big history nerd I love learning I love learning and that drives everything I do um, so I'm not into much like new cookbooks anymore because like I kind of understand the stories but I love knowing where the story comes from I love pulling threads uh, so, so will you tell everyone the story of the Nesselrod pie since I sort of oh, if um, I can remember teased it? It. Um, it was, I'd learned about it. It was like this big New York thing. You know, it was this very iconic New York thing. And I was like, I've never heard of this damn pie. Uh, and I was at the, we had the bakery at the time. And I'm like, well, this is what I want to make for Christmas. I want to, you know, like I said, I hate making the same thing twice. So I'm like, we're going we're gonna to learn about this. So I went back to my old cookbook collection and, you know, it's in all of them. Um, and describe what a Nesselrod pie actually oh is. Thank you. Uh, this is what a good editor does, by the way. They pull <laughs> the good stuff out of you. Uh, so there was just a, a pie crust, and inside there was like this rum-flavored mousse, and it was folded in with all I could find was uh, it was Nicelro, uh canned filling. And this was a common thing. You just knew you got the, the thing, and you folded it in, and it had red and green maraschino cherries, and I despise maraschino cherries. And I'm like, this can't be uh, a thing, you know? But that's how food history works. It's like you have something, and then it gets evolved, and it changes, and people do their interpretation. Uh, so I went back further, and there was something called Nesselrod pudding uh, that was popular in Victorian times, and that was more fresh chestnuts uh, and cured fruit. And I knew a lot about cured fruit because of the investigation I'd done on fruitcake years ago. And that's a story for another day. Um, I have a lot to say about fruitcake. And then I went back even further and further. Are you pro or con? Just let's start there. (laughs) Well, the Nesselrod pie started um, and you should read the article in Food 52 because I can remember dates and names better than that, but the, uh, it was after Napoleon was defeated, and there was a, a, a diplomat who, like, he knew that Napoleon was going down, and he wasn't stupid, and he was a, a gourmand, and he actually, he kind of created the, the celebrity chef. Like, he had this chef that he was patronizing like an artist, and then the Russians came in. And, and, that, was, and that was Karem, who is yeah. the most, I mean, the original foodie. Yes. He created food diplomacy, one could say. Yeah. So I loved the yeah. intersection of Karem and Nesselrod pie. Yes, and that's what happens. Like, the Russians came in, and he was like, is there, it's that French hospitality. And he was like, look at this. I'm, I'm cool. Look, I'm going to give you this stuff. And Count Nesselrod came in, and he was like, go make something nice for this guy. And they did. And then that actually begat, um, if you've ever had Russian food, it's heavily, heavily influenced by the French. And that sort of, you know, that came out from, from that. So it was like a peacemaker pie. Uh, and then it evolves into something that things are coming out of a can. They stopped using chestnuts. They were using cauliflower. Um, 
which is kind of ingenious because you're selling frozen cauliflower uh, florets, and they're like, what am I going to do with all these stents? So it was upcycling. Like, <laughs> you know? It's not a new idea, right? We always think no, so everything it, we do is so new. Now, Actually, and let's, let's talk about the fascination with the new, because you with the cupcakes and uh-huh. the chicken and waffle cupcakes yeah. and the... Um, you capitalized on, or you create, helped yeah. create a gigantic piece of the cupcake trend. Yeah, a, a very creative piece of it. Uh-huh. Uh, and you're probably asking a million times, like, "What's the next cupcake? Yeah. What are you going to do now? What are your thoughts about the cupcake today?" Um. Well, I think I, I even mentioned this in my book. Like, I was never a huge fan of cupcakes. The cupcakes really happened by accident. Um, but I appreciated what they did. They got a lot of women into their kitchens. Uh, and especially at a time of economic crisis, women could start businesses out of their kitchen to help pay the bills. And I got so many letters all across the country from women who were saying that uh, and saying that they loved my recipes and it was helping them make a business. And it really empowered a lot of women. And I was very... Um, even though I, I am more of a pudding person, I was so proud uh, of doing something that was empowering women like that. Uh, and then I really wanted to go to bat for them because, you know, people are like, oh, when is the cupcake craze going to go over? I'm like, you don't do this to men. You know, you don't go to men like, oh, men are doing this thing. Let's go crap on them and what they're doing. So I became very uh, protective of it. And it's not... You know, I don't like the fetishization of food, even though that that's what the media is based on. That's what Instagram is based on. It's not going to go away. It's just how we react to it now. Um, and the cupcake changed a lot of stuff for good and for bad. Uh, I, I like the simplicity of it. I like where it took us. I like where it took us as women um, being entrepreneurs. We, we really have to. You can't look back at it disdain. You have to say that there are women in the industry now, and there are women doing this, and there are women who just got empowered by it, where they were like, I can, you know, run my own business or I can do something else. And it was because of the cupcake. So I'd like us to look back on it more fondly than we did. Now, you're talking about women, women entrepreneurs, and you are a classic, an excellent one. Is there advice that you have for people who do want to start a business? Let's say they wanted to. I mean, there's so much that went into who you are today and the business that you've run. Yeah. But what is your Best um, lesson or biggest advice? Yeah, you you need a partner. You need a partner, and like my husband was my partner. Um, and now going forward, uh, if we we start another business, and people kept saying like, "Are you going to open up again?" You know, after Matt got sick, or are you going to start something new? I'm like, I would love to start something new, but I need partners to do it. I will not do something on my own again because um, Matt and I. I mean. We're really like the best. We are, uh, you know, couple goals for everybody out there. Um, We have like the most amazing marriage and he's my best friend, but we balance each other correctly. Like I have this crazy ADHD and I have a ton of like I'm living in the future and I have these ideas and Matt's like come back and and bring it in the now. So find somebody who can balance you, you know, and also never forget why you're doing it. It's not necessarily about making the most money. It's not necessarily about being on TV or, or getting a book deal. Because if that's what all that is, there's a much better way to do that that will, you know, where you can make money and support your family. Um, you got to do it because you love it. You've got to do it. And then I always tell when, when I do these entrepreneur classes, uh, I say, don't do it. This is a terrible idea. And I do everything I can to talk them out of it. And if you come out of that and you still want to do it, that's the first hurdle, you know, <laughs> because if I tell you not to do it, I give you a million good reasons why not to do it. 
and you walk out you're like, okay, you're right, this is a terrible decision, because it is a terrible decision. Um, and if that stops you, then you have no business being an entrepreneur. But you're like, yeah, you know, I could still do this, though. I'm still going to – and even if it's terrible and even if I have to eat beans out of a can for five years, this is what I want to do. Like, yeah, you got to want it. you got to want it bad. And right now you you have hit pause, so you mm-hmm. you, know, you moved from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, you moved to Baltimore. You were going to do franchises, yeah. a, a franchise business, and Matt got sick, and you put everything on hold, and you've been writing these incredible yeah. pieces. Thank and, you. And Matt's been doing some consulting. Yeah. You have. When you look at the adventure that is ahead of you, what is it that excites you the most? Everything. Everything. Um Today or yesterday, I came in, and it was the first time I'd been in New York in six months. And that's the longest I've ever been out of New York in my life. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Well, it, you know, you call it. I'm like, why does she want to talk to me? It's <laughs> like, Dana, oh my God, I'm not that important. Um, but I, I came in, and I, I realized very quickly why I left is because everybody's so sad here. We are all so sad all the time, and New York was not like that. And I left because I realized my kids couldn't live in my memories of what it was when it was when it was something wonderful. And when I went to Baltimore, I felt alive again. I felt, um, you know, and I, I was scared at first. And then I realized, like, when we had pushed pause for Matt's health, I was like, I was just going to do the same stuff in New York that I was going to do down here. And I don't know. I mean, I'm 36 now. Um, I actually moved on my 36th birthday. That's poetic. Uh, and I'm like, I, I've never been one to stay in the same place. So Matt was doing some consulting, and he's getting better, and, um, you know, he's not getting as much pain. He had scar tissue around his heart, and we need to let that dissolve. Oh, God, this is so depressing. Uh, I apologize to everyone at home. Uh, And, you know, he's getting better, so I was like, I'm going to just write completely this year. And I keep getting all these new ideas. Like, I still have the franchise deal. If I want to start something new, like, I talk to the CEO a couple of times a week. He's an amazing guy. We love each other. So if I wanted to start a new concept, I could franchise it. But I'm like, but maybe I don't want to. Maybe I just want to keep writing books. Um, I'm doing this great uh, Matt Rodbert. Do you know him? at uh, Clarkson Potter Intense. Oh, yes, of course. Just la- yeah, launched exciting. this new magazine called Taste, Taste Cooking. Yeah. And he contacted me early in the year. He's like, do you want to write something for me? Uh, and he gave me a piece to do on The Crown. Uh, and I was like, okay. I never watched it, but I got to dive right into hundreds of years of British history. Uh, and it's so perfect for you. Oh, it was so much oh fun. I can't wait for it to come out. It was like, it was supposed to be 800 words, and I submitted it. I'm like, it is 3,000 words, and you cannot cut any of this because it's <laughs> so much fun. Uh, and that's really the, the history thing and learning more. Like, I'm learning so much this year. And I think that's going to really influence where we where we go forward. I love that Baltimore is a city where anything can happen. There's so much great real estate there. I I'm, I have a house for fourteen fifty guys, and there's a house down the street that's for sale. It's a it's a small house. If you want a tiny house of eight hundred square feet, it's like uh, thirty nine thousand dollars. You know, and when you have again, when you have broken things, you can fix them. When you have broken things, and you find other people who love broken things, you can come together and collaborate. The art scene down there is amazing. We have a rock opera society. Like people, like I like rock opera enough that we're gonna get like another twenty people, and we're gonna write them, or we're gonna perform them. And this is a girl who is yeah. was so Bay Ridge, so Bay Ridge, so Bensonhurst. So, so Benson. I mean, I went to Stuyvesant in, in the nineties and hanging out in, in the West Village and, and doing all these things, and that's that's gone. You know, that's gone. And then I went to Baltimore. I'm like, this is I found it again. Like, okay, so it. Baltimore, you've heard it is the new. 
is it? Brooklyn? I don't know. I think it could be. Baltimore. Not that it needs to be. That's going to make it trendy, so that's yeah. probably a bad well, they, thing. There are a lot of people in Baltimore doing what Brooklyn did five years ago, and I don't like that. Again, I want people to tell their story. And there is a story there, and they need to tell it, and we need to get it out of them. But I would say that um, what Brooklyn was to Manhattan, Baltimore is kind of like that to D.C. It's affordable, and there's more room to, there's a lot of young people there. There's a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs there. Uh, It's an affordable place to start a business, so I get that. I get that. That's a Brooklyn spirit. You had um, talked about um, the thinking in the mind of your kids. Yeah. And I'd love to have you... Um, express that to the listeners. Yeah. How is it that your kids have inspired you? Oh, my kids are... Um, or shaped the way you <laughs> want to run a business. Really. They, they shape everything you want to do. Like, I didn't think I was the type of person to be a mom. I, I Babies are okay, but they don't really do anything, you know? And I was never... I don't know, like, I'm not, I'm not a fussy girl. I'm very much abroad. Uh, but these kids, they just keep making me better, and they keep challenging you. And you keep thinking, like, you go to work, and you think you know everything, or you're like, yeah, I'm, like, the master of, of my job, and I'm at the top of my career, and then you go home, and um, they realize it's chaos. It's, it's so much chaos. And it humbles you, first off, and it makes you a better person that way. And then it makes you really think about the example that you want to set. And there's a lot of tough choices in business. Uh, there's a lot of tough choices in, in everything. And Matt and I agreed really early that when we had a tough decision to make, I would just imagine Atticus and Toby being faced with that decision. I'm like, well, what do they want? What do I, as a mom, want them to do? And then I'd do that decision. And it wasn't always the smartest thing uh, business-wise. It wasn't always the most successful thing or the richest thing. Um, But it was something I I could live with. And I'm like, I'm going to set this example for them. Uh, And my, my number one job in everything is making sure that they grow up to be really good men. Uh, and it's been nice since we moved down. Like, we press pause, and, like, I'm seeing them so much. And uh, Atticus will be 10 next month, and they're really at a point where they need their parents. Uh, and it, it's so rewarding. They're the, they're the best thing that has ever happened to me by a mile. Um, so let's talk about other mentors. Yeah. Um, and that's the... Uh, we love to pay it forward on this show. Yeah. So is there a woman in... The world of food. All of them. (laughs) We're all everybody's mentor. Um, Every person you meet has an opportunity to be a mentor, even if it's for a cup of coffee or or five minutes. You you should never be in any position in your life where you're not learning something. uh, But what woman would you choose and say, (sighs) you know what, I wanted to be like her or the way that she's either worked or lived her life or cooked or, well, you know, made you, a biscuit. There's you. Everybody. Mm-hmm. You're the winner of, of this business. Everybody knows it. So let's not even just skirt that issue. We all know who Dana is. Um, there's a thousand of them. There's uh, Rebecca Charles and her wife, Deborah, at Pearl Oyster Bar. There's Kat Kinsman, um, who's a, a, a brilliant editor, but even a better human being, and, and Helen Rosner. Uh, my friend, Siobhan Wallace, who is one of the like three people I'm, I'm, I have really as close friends. She's an amazing food editor. Kenzie Wilbur at Food 52. Uh, Amanda Cohen at Dirt Candy, who's like my texting buddy when we're really terrified about the government. We talk about moving to Canada together. Uh, Charlotte Druckmann, who was like the first... First person to teach me how to write. Um, uh, Liz Gutman, Fanny Gerson, who's 
uh, a very close friend of mine. I mean, I could I could sit here for an entire show <laughs> and just, and just n- name, name the amazing women. All these women, uh, you know, Anita Lowe, Roxanne Spruce, uh, Patty. Um, Patty over at Delaware and Hudson and, and Lauren, uh, you know. So I guess uh, having you name just one is really. It's impossible. It's impossible because, you know, we as women, we are a community. And uh, I mean, I'd like to think of us sometimes as a community of, uh, you know, we're all going out and we're learning different things on different fronts. You know, you have some in fine dining and some in writing and, and some in PR. And when we do come together and we have those shared moments, we are looking out for each other and we do talk to each other. And like we're all a lot of us are really close friends on Facebook and uh, we, we can kvetch with each other about experiences. But we'll also just, you know, I'll, I won't talk to somebody for like eight months and then I'll get a text from them and immediately you'll drop what you're doing to help that person. So I think that's the, that's such a beautiful way to, to wrap yeah. up the show today. Yeah. The, the community of women that yeah. we're all a part of. We're all and, together. And all of us. listeners, that includes you. Yes. So thank Subscribe you. to my tiny letter. Friend me on Twitter. <laughs> Send me a message after the show. I'll, I'll, I'll answer them this afternoon. She is great. Allison's great at answering. So do so. Give them yes. your, give them how uh, to reach you at Robicelli's uh, on Twitter is always a great way. Uh, you can like my Facebook page, which is Chef Allison Robicelli. I post my writing there and the tiny letter. I just started that, and I believe you're allowed to click reply on those. So you can you can always email me. Uh, I, I'm easy to chat to. Uh, so and and. All that. and obviously incredibly inspiring with great stories to share. Yes, and read all my stuff on Taste Cooking. Write letters to my editors and say Allison's great. You should pay her more. (laughs) (laughs) To follow my adventures you can find me at at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter as well as of course at Speaking Broadly. All of my shows are archived here at HeritageRadioNetwork.org iTunes and Stitcher. I'd love it if you would subscribe or give me feedback. I'm with Allison. I love people reaching out to me. I yes. answer I answer quickly and yes. enthusiastically. You can never have enough friends in the world. Never. <laughs> or enough input or enough ideas. Again, learn uh, every day. Learn every day. And I wanted to thank my engineer today, David Tedeshore. Hi, David. Woohoo, David. Um, and all of you listeners, have a great week. Till next week and see you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.